about jobs. You know, just that small thing you're constantly working towards throughout all of your college career. And the theme of that fair that is always somehow conveniently scheduled the week of all of your midterms. But in the end, all of the pain from your studies is so worth it given the incredible experiences you'll have while benefiting the exploration of our planet and everything beyond it. And the aerospace industry is an incredible place to work. There's really no denying that. But it is, it's very competitive. So one thing that many students are constantly thinking about is, you know, with my experience, how do I stand out? How do I get my foot in the door? Further, when you get an offer, how do you really know if it's really the right job for you? And not only in terms of what you do, but also where you go and whom you work with. What are the different ways that you can evaluate that? So if you're interested in hearing career advice when it comes to finding a job, learning how to become successful and more involved in your company when you get one, and what things to look out for along the way, then you, my friend, are in the right place. Welcome to the latest episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which aims to explore the details behind how spacecraft and various payloads come together before launch and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and in today's episode, I will be chatting with Professor Charles Bomer on career advice within the aerospace industry. Professor Bomer is a faculty associate at ASU in the Fulton Schools of Engineering, where he teaches space systems design, which is essentially the capstone course for students studying the astronautic side of aerospace engineering. And he'll go into this a little bit more in the interview, but his past experience, he's worked in the Navy, spent several years at Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics, so he has a lot of really incredible experiences over the years and has many, many stories to share from it. So there is a little bit of a backstory on this episode that I, I want to share, just as kind of an intro into, into today's topic. So throughout all of my undergrad, I was part of this really amazing student organization at ASU called the Sun Devil Satellite Lab, or SDSL for short, which facilitates projects and various events related to the spacecraft side of aerospace engineering. So in the spring of 2019, we held an industry panel in which we asked members from a few different industries in the Valley, including Professor Bomer, about what their career paths have been like and what has helped them along the way. So afterwards, a few of us ended up staying to chat with him a little bit more about his career and ask him some more specific questions. And what followed was some of the most informative advice that I've ever received on how to navigate the waters of your career, both in the early stages and later on. So while this podcast is mainly dedicated to examining spacecraft and payloads, I wanted to include this episode to be helpful to those of you who are preparing for a career in the aerospace industry, but perhaps haven't heard advice like this before. So I hope you enjoy this episode on career advice and that you take some very valuable information away from it. And with that being said, let's just dive right into the interview. Thank you very much for doing this with me. And I guess without further ado, let's get started. So I'd like to start this off with kind of exploring your career path a little bit um, and introducing you to the rest of the people listening. So what has your career path been like and what factors shaped it to get to where you are now? Okay, well, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm Chuck Bomer and uh, I've had an incredibly unique and rewarding career. I started off after I graduated from Gonzaga University going into the Navy, and I spent 24 years there and loved every day of it. Uh, I had two separate careers in the Navy. One was flying, and uh, I pretty much ended that after I graduated from test pilot school. 
and ended up at the Pentagon in the in the space business, which I, I really loved. And when I retired from the Navy, out of that came a, a really good offer from, uh, at that time, Lockheed Missiles and Space Systems in Sunnyvale, California. And uh, I spent about nine years there building satellites for the intelligence community. I was a program manager. Uh, it was extremely rewarding. Had uh, people working for me all over the world. And not only was it technically rewarding, but it was a lot of fun too. After I retired from Lockheed, I went to work for General Dynamics down in Las Cruces in the communication satellite area. It was new and different and also a lot of fun. And it was at that time that I started teaching uh, space systems engineering and systems engineering at New Mexico State University. So I've been doing this for a little bit over 20 years. And a couple of years ago, I started uh, teaching space systems engineering at ASU. So that's pretty much been my career. It's been uh, an incredible career and very, very rewarding from a number of standpoints. That, that is one heck of a career. <laughs> um, how, I guess, so since you... Since you said that you were a, a program manager uh, for a little while, how how did you actually get into doing that? Well, it, in in those uh, in those days, you didn't necessarily have to have a PME or be certified as a program manager. It was kind of a whole different thing, and I think the I was I was hired in as as a program manager and systems engineer because of what I had done in this satellite business uh, when I was still in the Navy. It had a lot to do with seniority. Certainly some, you know, buddy fresh out of college is not gonna be hired in as a, as a program manager or chief systems engineer. So it, it had to do with a lot of that in, in managing people. Unfortunately, in, in a way, about 90% uh, of your job as a program manager anywhere is managing people. And it just takes up all of your time between HR and other issues and uh, that go on in, in large programs. Like I had about 1200 people working for me in one program in uh, three different continents, uh, along with building the satellite. So it uh, it's a huge job just managing people. but. It, it happened, you know, more because of my seniority and what I had done in uh, in the satellite business than anything else. So it, it's something you really, over the years, kind of work your way up into. And I, I'll talk a little bit more about the career paths uh, later on. Going off of that, I think it one of the the hardest things um, about looking for a job in the first place is just figuring out how to get there and figuring out what the right steps are for um, determining which job is right for you, as well as how to kind of make yourself stand out amongst a lot of the other candidates. And even into that, there's also, you know, do I go on to grad school or do I just go and get a job? And so I, I, I want to start there and okay. kind of break it up into uh, searching for a job and then go into kind of more of the early days of the workforce and finish out with um, how things change over time and some things to look out for along the way. Regarding schooling versus a job, um, after you get your bachelor's, what are your thoughts on pursuing grad school versus 
going the opposite route and immediately looking for a job and going to grad school later or having the company kind of help pay for grad school as, yeah. as a, a goal? I, I think right now in this particular time, there, there's a number of answers to that question. Going to grad school and, and getting a master's could be a great idea because if you're hired into a company with a master's degree as opposed to a, uh, a bachelor's, uh, you should be offered more money. The best of all worlds would be to have a job offer on the table, accept it, and most medium to large companies will pay for a master's degree later on. And, and most schools like having people with you know, technical engineering jobs get a master's degree in their field. So, so that's really the way to go. I think that for somebody looking for a job and not necessarily going into teaching and research, they don't want a master's in aerospace engineering or civil engineering or whatever, getting an MBA would not be a bad idea. I, I have two master's degrees, one's in aeronautical engineering, the other's in material and financial management. And as it turns out, over the years, I've used the latter rather than the former much, much more than, than the engineering degree, although the engineering degree has been just, you know, a super help in, you know, the airplane world and test pilot school and even in the space business. But getting an MBA or... Uh, an industrial engineering degree, something like that, and, and maybe focusing on systems engineering would be a, a way to go. I, I would say, though, if, if somebody was has a good job offer on the table and that's what they're looking for, then that's what they ought to do and, and let somebody else pay for it because it, it's so expensive. And most will. Most will. That is good. I didn't. Um, I didn't really think about the the MBA or the industrial engineering masters. I, I guess with with my path, I kind of figured continuing aerospace engineering as a master's student, just getting more general experience before uh, releasing mm -hmm. myself into the wild. Yeah, as I, as it, I and it depends on on the university at uh, at ASU. Systems engineering happened. You know, is the I think their only course happens to be in uh, in the IE department in industrial engineering. At New Mexico State, it's in the double E department. So it just, uh, I think a lot of it depends on what's, what school you're looking at. Yeah, that's, that's a good point that you bring up, like systems engineering being in, in different departments. I, I think it's very easy to kind of get boggled down in looking at courses only within your major when, you know, really there's a lot of courses that could really benefit you that aren't in your area of study. Um, I'm I'm really glad that you know, electrical engineering courses are roped into our major map for aerospace engineering. Like I, I took communication systems with Bliss, and it was a fantastic class. It was probably one of my favorite, and it, it gave you a really good overview of exactly how a radio works and everything else that goes along with uh, ensuring that the information that you got at point B is what was sent at point A. So. So after you get your master's, you have to go out and, and get a job. So um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, uh, kind of what are, what are the recommendations that you have when it comes to looking for a job? Um, are there ways that you can reach out to people to make yourself more noticeable? And how can those help you stand out from other people who are vying for the same position? Okay. 
I think, you know, first and foremost, as far as general recommendations is that, you know, make sure that you have a top-notch cover letter and resume that uh, is tailored to every company you want to apply to, you know, make it unique and make it unique to the job that you're looking for. The other recommendations I'd have is, is that as a student or as soon as you get out of school, join professional organizations and subscribe to their journals. Uh, IEEE, AIAA have outstanding journals. Also, they have many conferences all over the country all year long, and it's a great place to network. And then, you know, if, if you're interested in the space business, as an example, investigate all the companies, anybody that you're interested in, investigate what they do, uh, understand where they are. It's a, their location is important as taking a look at a place to live. And so understand as, as best as you can any, any company that you're going to apply to. You know what they do, and and in some cases, you know what their what they think their mission is. As far as you know, making yourself more noticeable and and putting yourself out there, use your your friends or friends of friends to find out about a company and and whether they're hiring or not. Can they introduce you to somebody that's that's looking for people to do a particular job that you're interested in? And that is actually the best way to get into a company as opposed to through through recruiters is to meet somebody uh, somehow or another that is actually, you know, has a job opening and then they can work uh, through the uh, recruiter for you. Network as much as possible. And, and that's difficult. Uh, I always, I was never very good at networking, but I never had to. But, you know, try to convince yourself that, it, that it's a great way to meet people. It's a great way to investigate jobs and make yourself a, uh, a really good elevator speech and practice it, practice it, practice it. So you can walk up to somebody and look them in the eye, tell them who you are and what you're looking for. And, and that's what you need to do. And thank you very much. And, and you can really set yourself apart by by doing just that so going back to evaluating a company one thing i recall you mentioning at the industry panel that i think was some of the best advice really on on evaluating a company was that you should try to see if if you can tour during the work week when you can see you know exactly what an average day is like there and not only that but while you're there try to see if you can talk to the people who work there and ask them about what it's like working in the company what an average day is like and if you know you're not allowed to talk to people, then something is wrong. <laughs> Don't have any personal experience with that myself, but I th I think that's one of the best possible ways to see if you are really going to like working somewhere. So I guess following pursuing a job, if you have multiple offers, how do you know which one is really the right choice? What yeah. what kind of factors go into deciding which job to pick yeah. at the end of the day? And that's. That's tough, but it's also would be wonderful, I think, to have multiple job offers. Yeah. Uh, but if, if you're lucky enough to have multiple job offers, you know, choose the one that you're passionate about. You know, you may for a couple of years have to take a job 
and keep looking around just because of finances. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have multiple job offers, look at each one carefully, look at the companies carefully, look at the location carefully, and, and make sure that, that you're passionate uh, about what you're going to be doing. I think that's one thing that I had throughout my career that I was fortunate is I never got bored with what I was doing and I was always passionate about flying and later became passionate about the space business. But I've seen a lot of people spend a lot of miserable years just getting by. And so if you have the opportunity to select a particular company or a particular job, you know, make sure it's really what you want to do. That is first and, and foremost, I think, over everything else. I think some other factors that, you know, come into play are certainly location. Uh, if you happen to have a significant other, it need, you both need to be fairly happy with where you're going. If you're not an outdoors person and you don't like the cold weather, Denver's probably not for you. And you could be miserable trying to live in a, in a place like that. So anyway, I, I think, you know, look at the location. Another factor, obviously, is, is money. And, but don't be fooled by a job offer in the San Francisco Bay Area versus in Phoenix, Arizona. Look at the cost of living index for anybody that's offering you a job. Probably if you were to get a, uh, a, an offer from somewhere in, the, uh, in Silicon Valley, it would probably be around eighty dollars to $90,000 for starters. However, that translates into about $60,000 in the Phoenix area. So, so don't be fooled you know, by money. Go in and look at the cost of living index versus where you're living now. And, and try to figure out, you know, what you can do on the amount of money that you're offered. So, so be very, very careful about, you know, just looking at, at a gross number. Uh, it's not always what it, uh, what it appears to be. Guess that's about it with multiple job offers, uh, you know, hopefully. Even just, you, even just one job offer, like you yeah. can just have one and it may not be what you're looking for. That's yeah. right. And if it's not what you're looking for, you know, don't take it, you know, if you're going to be miserable at it. If, you know, again, for financial reasons, you know, you may have to do something like that. Take, take it and then just keep looking. Make sure you don't look while you're on the job, though. You know, you never, I, th I think, uh, you never want to burn a bridge mm -hmm. uh, because you never know when it's going to come back and bite you or you never know who's gonna be able to help you. The, the boss at the company you're working for that you don't necessarily wanna be at may know somebody in a company where you wanna work and, and could help you. So always do the best you can at whatever you're doing. All very, very helpful advice. Kind of segueing into more of the early days of the workforce. Being in a new role, are there any, like there, there's a lot of things like procedures people you work with that are just completely new to you and so it can definitely feel very overwhelming at first to just be in a new role and also be in a new company um, so so one thing I wanted to ask was what, what kind of advice you would give people for helping them get a little bit more involved in their new role and uh, in this new company that they're now part of and kind of succeed within that 
you know, I think one of the, the best ways to get into a company and really learn about it is, is first of all, try and understand as best as possible when you first get there, uh, what their policies and procedures are and make sure that you understand, you know, the, the culture of the company and what's expected of you. One of the other things that, that I would suggest that people do is get involved with proposals. Proposals are the heart of a company. That's where all their future work is. And they tend to put their best people in charge of them, and they're really good people working on them. So it's a great place to meet the top managers of the company and some of the best people in the company. And it's also a good place for you to build a reputation as a hard worker. And because proposals are tough, they tend to go 15 to 20 hours a day, seven days a week until it's done. And it can be brutal work, but it's also very, very rewarding uh, work. And you can learn a lot about the company and getting involved in a proposal and find out you know, how that company really, really operates. How would you recommend getting involved in that? Do you just kind of like find out that they're doing something and then ask? Is it, yeah, is it usually something? It's, it's pretty well known around a company that oh, okay. a large proposal is, is coming, coming in the door. And, you know, ask your manager, your supervisor, if, if you could get involved in the proposal. A lot of times, especially if you're, if you're young and you're just starting in the com- company, they're not going to put you on it full time, but they will put you on part time in an area of your expertise or to work with other people like the propulsion system on a satellite, you know, to, to write up certain sections of the propulsion system or the computer system, whatever it happens to be. And you may be over there for a short period of time just writing, writing up certain things to go into the proposal. But while you're there, you can learn a lot and really, I think, make yourself known in the company. It's an easy way to do it. Some other other things to, to make yourself known is, is to ask a lot of questions and, and try and, and get yourself a mentor. You can do that by trying to subtly find out who's considered one of the top people in your particular field. And just, you know, be direct, go up and, you know, ask, you know, hey, can I sit down and have lunch with you once a week? And, you know, talk about, you know, what you do and get some suggestions on what I need to do to become tops in my field. I I think having a mentor is really important. I was really, really lucky at at Lockheed as I had one of the, the top system engineers in the satellite business in the country probably in the world as my mentor. And, and he was just unbelievable. And his name was Connie Chambers and everybody in the satellite business knew who Connie Chambers was. And he was a great systems engineer and a great mentor. And uh, I learned stuff from him that I, I still do today. Just an, an incredible person. So it, it can be a huge help to you and, uh, and also in learning some pitfalls in, in the company. I think there, there are things that, that you have to watch out for when, when you first go to work. And you know, some of that is 
don't get involved in being a gossip monger. The workplace is no different than anywhere else that you've been. You've been at school, you've seen it. Don't put anybody down. Always try and build people up and be, become known as the positive person. Never said a bad word about anybody. And, and I think that's a good rule to, to live by and re- respect people's personal space. You know, this may sound crazy, but I've, I've seen it go south really bad a number of times. If you're single, think long and hard about dating somebody that you're working with. It's a recipe for disaster, and it may not seem like it at the time, but I, I've seen it over and over again throughout my career at, uh, at Lockheed and General Dynamics, and it just doesn't work out very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would agree that, you know, especially when there's a lot of things in a company that you have to get used to and get familiar with in the beginning, like having a mentor or someone who knows what things are happening and, and when is really powerful. You want someone looking over your shoulder who can go, hey, you know, this is a really important meeting happening tomorrow, and I think you'd really benefit from sitting in on it. And I like what you said, too, about respecting space and lifting people up. I think that's a, that's a very important characteristic to always carry with you. So it's a good thing to mention. So moving, moving off of that into discussing things to consider in more of the later stages of your career, what are your thoughts on jumping around in a company, uh, say, between different technical disciplines to broaden your experiences? Is that something that you've seen a lot of people do and benefit from? And if that's something that you're interested in, how would you recommend going about doing that? It, it depends on person to person, and it depends on, on the company and, and how they're, they're set up. In, in general, it, it is certainly possible to, to move around and get different jobs. I think one that you mentioned is especially possible, like going from the uh, attitude determination subsystem into systems engineering. The best systems engineers came out of the uh, attitude determination and control area because they deal with the entire spacecraft. Right. They, they, they have to know everything that's going on electrically, electronically, mechanically, structurally, mm-hmm. uh, everything. And, and so they end up being great systems engineers. And so that is, that's possible. And, uh, you know, if you, if you find yourself wanting to, to change areas, talk to somebody in the area that you want to go to and, and then talk to whoever your supervisor is, too. If you're doing a great job, your supervisor is not going to want to let you go. Uh, <laughs> but, but you need to, you know, set up some good arguments, uh, you know, for it. And, and I, I think it's a, you know, as a manager... Think it's a good idea to have people move around and uh, and learn all sorts of different skills within the company, and and those are the people going back to systems engineering that make the great systems engineers because they know a little bit about everything. You know, systems engineering is is very broad. The technical areas are very deep, and personally, that's what my passion is, and I think that's where you know, everything's at is in systems engineering. It's some of the most fun, but it's not for everybody. And uh, for people that are interested in it, looking at the uh, JPL Gentry Lee 
So you want to be a systems engineer. I think you've seen that. I did uh, watch it. That was a that was a really great video. Yeah, yeah, that. it's it's a good one for anybody to see. I think that's going into engineering. Period. I think you can take the systems out of there, and so you want to be an engineer because it pretty much applies across the board. I think. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in uh, you know, I think the direct answer is yes. It's possible to move around within a company. You just make sh- need to make sure that your manager or supervisor, you know, knows that you know you'd like to broaden yourself. Okay. Uh, looking back, what have been some of the biggest challenges that you that you've faced throughout your career? I think the the biggest challenge that anybody's faced with, uh, especially if you have a significant other, has been to balance family versus career. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to be the president of an aerospace company, that's one thing. If you just want to be, and there's nothing wrong with it, an engineer and you, you're not interested in management at all, that's a totally different type of career path and and work effort and and so you need to be able to balance you know the the family and career business or if if you're single and you don't have a family you need to be able to balance your personal life with your career you need to realize that what is going to be expected of you if you want to become a program manager or if you want to become a vice president of a company or if you want to become the president of a company. And they're all different. And you reach, it may sound weird, but you you reach a particular point in your career as a program manager, maybe slightly before that, depending on, on who you're working for, and you sell your soul to the company. And basically, you're expected to be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It doesn't take that, but you need to be available when when things go awry, especially if you're managing people. So balancing career and your life, whatever it has to be in that moment is really important. You have to agree with yourself what you're doing, or if you have a significant other, you need to agree, uh, have an agreement there too. The second biggest challenge, I think, that, that I have faced is, and I've mentioned it earlier, is managing people. That is really tough. And as you work your way up the line and uh, you, you get a supervisory job, then you become a program manager, it all requires more and more time to manage people. And, and as a program manager, I was spending probably 90% of my time on uh, managing people, on taking care of people issues, and 9% going to meetings and 1% having fun in engineering. So those have been the the biggest challenges. Engineering-wise, I think that we're all uh, coming out of of school, that you're well-prepared from an engineering and technical standpoint to take on the challenges that you'll be given. Those tend not to be overwhelming at all. Starting out in the workforce, I think some of the, the biggest challenges that you'll be faced with is, is becoming patient and, and not, not expecting everything within the first week that, that you're at a, at a company. It'll probably be slow. You'll probably 
start to become impatient. You know, when is the real work going to start? But everybody's got to get a get a feel for everybody else when you go to work for somebody. In some cases, you may be asked to jump right in, but in a lot of cases, you're not. And you just have to be patient. I think uh, back to where we were before in, in making yourself known, you know, ask a lot of questions of your peers and, and then try and find a mentor. And uh, I think that'll help you through you know, some of the, the early days as you start to, you know, get a feel for the company and, and how you're going to, to fit into uh, wherever it is you work. Um, to, to comment on one of your other points, I, I think that what you said there about being patient, especially, is, is a really good point to make. You know, and, and I think that one of the things that I've seen over the years is that even if when you start, you really don't have many tasks, you know, there's still a lot that you can learn just through the opportunity, not only on the technical side, but also with how people communicate points, communicate with each other, ask questions, or try to solve problems. You know, and I, I find, personally, I find watching those exchanges fascinating. Um, that's been one of my favorite things throughout all of my experiences. But sticking with the theme of looking back, uh, is there anything that you wish you had learned or focused on in school that you feel could have just better prepared you for entering the workforce? Well, I think one of the things that that I never had the opportunity to learn about, of course, we didn't do it in those days, but I think most everybody that's graduating now uh, has had to work in teams. And and, uh, being able to work effectively in a team is absolutely essential these days uh, in any company because that's how work is accomplished. It's in teams. And you'll find it no different than when you were at school. There, there are people who don't want to work with everybody else. They want to do nothing and take all the credit for it, not turn the work in on time uh, and have all sorts of excuses for it. You'll run into everything that you ran into in school. You need to realize that before you go into it and just kind of accept it, ignore it, and just get on with your job. You know, hopefully, in, you know, in a team environment, uh, you've got a good leader and you can discuss problems that arise, but that's the ideal team. Uh, it's not the way it always works. That's one thing that I really had to learn later on in life, in my career is working in teams. And uh, it, it's difficult to say the least. Right. You know, and I think one of the most useful things that I got out of working on the Phoenix CubeSat was just learning how to work with people, because you really don't get that from a classroom setting unless you're doing something like Capstone. So that's, that's a really good point. I think that's all that I have in terms of questions, but is there any other last minute advice that you'd like to impart in this interview? Well, I think one, one thing that, uh, that I haven't talked about is that there, there's one thing that you own that nobody can take away from you, and that's integrity. And I always deliver what you promise, always deliver it on time, and always be truthful in your dealings within the company and outside of the company. And if you do that, I think everything will works itself out in the long run. But integrity is everything. And be really 
careful. There are, if you go to work for a contractor doing government business, there's all sorts of rules and regulations on, on how you deal with subcontractors and people in the government. And, and make sure that you understand those rules and regulations very, very well. Because uh, along with integrity being so important, never forget that perception is reality. So if someone thinks you're doing something, you're doing it. And it just puts you in a very, very bad position. And the other thing is, is that when, when you first go to work for a company, I think another thing to keep in mind is you, you, you never have the chance to uh, make a first impression again. And, and so when you first go to work for a company, you know, you always wanna make a good first impression on your supervisor and on the people that you're going to be working with. Because if you don't, it's gonna take you a long time to dig your way out of it. Mm -hmm. all right. Well, thank you very much for all of that incredibly helpful information. Um, one, I have one last question, which is kind of a, a fun question that I, I like to ask people, a which is, um, yeah, yeah, a fun question, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a, a favorite story, any kind of story from um, any part in your career? Well, let's see, that's uh, one of the best stories I had was that when I was in test pilot school, I was out uh, flying with uh, an, an Israeli pilot uh, we were doing uh, some testing, and at that time, it was a T2. Uh, it was a, a dual-engine jet, a two-seater, and we were pulling about four or five Gs doing a particular test, and there was a crack in the rudder and the aileron. Both of them happened to crack at the same time, and uh, we were... <laughs> pretty sure we were going to have to ditch this airplane. It was in the middle of winter over Chesapeake Bay and the waters were really, really cold and we did not have poopy suits on and it took both of us on the rudder and the stick to get the airplane back to Patuxent River Naval Air Station where we had taken off and we brought that sucker in and uh, got it back on the ground. Wow. Uh, as it turns out, it, it became a huge issue uh, in the entire T2 fleet. And it, as a result of that accident, all the T2s were inspected and they found about 50% of the fleet had the same kind of cracks. And of course, that was the primary airplane that they used in uh, jet training in the Navy at the time. So it could have really been bad, but that is not a great story, but it, uh, it's one that I will always remember. Did that ever freak you out? Was it, with being a test pilot, was kind of like the risks like that that you'd be taking or was it? Um... Yeah, it was, there was a couple of things that we did that were pretty freaky. We did probably the physically toughest thing and mentally toughest thing that I ever did was F-14 spin testing. The F-14 was built by Grumman, uh, before Northrop Grumman, out in Bethpage, uh, New York, out on Long Island. And it was touted, like a lot of airplanes were, as being spin-proof. And as best as I know, they've never built an airplane that was spin-proof, but that's how it was touted. 
And about three years after it was deployed in the Navy, a F-14 uh, flew through some uh, jet wash from another airplane, spun out, and killed both the, the pilot and the missile system officer in the back seat. It happened on two more occasions, and fortunately, both got out of the airplanes. Uh, but there were three crashes directly attributed to spin and jet wash. And so we at Pax River uh, took some F-14s out, intentionally spun them, and tried to figure out how to get out of a spin. And uh, with the F-14, uh, the pilot and the uh, radar officer sit way in front of the center of gravity. And so the spin is really violent out on, out where you sit. Mm -hmm. And we had black eyes for weeks after doing those spin tests, oh, uh, just because of the, the lateral G that was put on you and, you know, on your blood vessels and everything else. But we did figure out how to get out of a spin in the F-14 and, mm. and all was well for years thereafter. But that was, that was some of the, probably the scarier stuff we did. A mm. uh, lot of it, like a, a lot of things, you know, is, uh, is boring, interspersed with some stark terror flights every once in a while, just like flying off aircraft carriers. But uh, yeah, that was that was one of the hairier things that, that I did in the, the test business. Well, uh, I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for, for doing this to me. I, I really, really appreciate it. And I know that all of our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. So I hope you. so. Oh, you're very welcome, Sarah. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you all for listening in on another episode of The Art of Space Engineering. I hope this was able to give you advice on all of your early career-seeking needs. And definitely go check out Gentry Lee's So You Want to Be a Systems Engineer lecture. It's about an hour long, but it's funny, it's engaging, and most importantly, it communicates some really essential qualities to have when it comes to solving engineering problems, evaluating things from a big picture point of view, and really taking something from a concept and set of requirements to a final system. Play it when you're getting ready in the morning, out for a run or cooking, and you will be happy that you did it. A huge thank you again goes to Professor Bomer for giving his time to help me recount our ad hoc interview. I'm really glad that we were finally able to have a recorded version of this to share it with all of you, because we did not get one last time and we were sad. If you enjoyed this episode, along with the other content that I've been sharing, don't forget to rate and follow this podcast wherever you may be listening to it, and share these episodes with your friends. You can also like this on Facebook, where I'll be posting regularly about upcoming episodes. And as always, any feedback is greatly appreciated, as I really want to make these episodes as useful to you as I possibly can. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, please feel free to suggest things. New episodes will be published every three weeks, so stay tuned for more adventures in space engineering. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.